Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Before we get started, I am very excited to announce that Graphisoft is now an official partner of Entree Architect and the Entree Architect community. I've been meeting with the Graphisoft team for months preparing for this partnership, and I can, I can confidently say that our friends at Graphisoft are fully committed to supporting our architecture firms and our transition to ARCHICAD and BIM. ARCHICAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery, no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ARCHICAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. And that's why I am personally committed to finally making the move to BIM myself, from CAD to ARCHICAD. And I'll share more about that as I progress. I'll, I'll keep you updated. So regardless of which design software you're using today, I encourage you to reach out and talk to the team at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our community of architects. So go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. Now, let's get on with the show. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Dave Pollard, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Great to have you here. This is going to be a fun conversation. I'm, I'm very interested in what your company is doing these days, how you got to where you are today. Um, and so uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation um, let me introduce you to our audience. Dave Pollard is an architect, a builder, and co-founder of Live Companies, a full-service residential design-build company in the Chicago suburbs. Liveco, as they call it, is doing things a bit differently. Liveco was created to streamline the process through a single-stop, full integration of design and construction. So they're architects and builders, and they're offering the whole package to their, their customers um, that's something that architects talk about a lot. A lot of us want to do that. Um, and so I'm 
I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you, Dave, about how you got to where you are. Maybe you'll inspire some architects who have similar thoughts on how they could do the same thing. And so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, my my kind of origin story, I guess, is um, probably like a lot of architects out there. As a kid, I just love making stuff. So I was always tinkering, building, taking apart my brother's stereo equipment. Um, very curious, like to make, love to draw. Um, and I don't know how it kind of got into buildings. I think I loved cars, things of that nature. And at some point, um, buildings, houses really interested me. So I was always studying floor plans. I mean, just like a, a total, total nerd, you know, fifth, fifth grade asked for a drafting board for my birthday. I just love drawing and kind of creating these, these things, building tree houses, all that stuff. So I think from an early age, I was uh, kind of, you know, somewhat destined to, to the architectural career path. And my parents certainly supported me the whole way with summer enrichment programs and, you know, when you're not hanging out with your friends because you're building paper, paper models of houses, you know, your parents want to try and, and, and embrace that. Um, so, yeah, so I, I made my made my way to architecture school and uh, went to Virginia Tech. Uh, and that was absolutely life changing because the T-square and all the stuff that I thought we were going to learn about drawing floor plans was thrown out the window. And our first project first day we're all sitting there and our professor comes in and puts an onion in front of us and he says <laughs> write six pages about this onion i'll be back in 15 minutes yeah, looking around am i still in architecture school exactly yeah and I, I kid you not like one of my best friends today he he had like a t-square in his hand you know he was like i'm here for architecture school let's do some drawing um and so we had to write about this onion and then he came back out and he's like why is the onion still sitting there no one's picked the onion up. Like, what are you guys doing? Um, and so we picked the onion up and then we started thinking about it. And then he comes back out and he's like, how come no one's peeled the onion apart? So that was the first step in resetting our minds and everything that we learned in our curriculum, which for me was, was invaluable, which maybe is why I ended up doing what I am today, which is kind of like, you know, the world is whatever you want to make out of it. It's not necessarily what, what path you have to take. So I, I embrace that architecture school culture. I think a lot of people were like, this is just a little bit too weird, but um, it, it, it fit really well with me and kind of set me up for a, a career path of thinking outside the box and trying to think about things differently. So then, you know, you get out of architecture school, you go work for your first firm, I worked for a, a small, you know, smaller firm. I think we were like 30 people then um, very hands on uh the partners love to teach. It was really, really great for me because I learned a lot about the deliverables and the process and even contract contract negotiations. Like all the partners were really intentionally trying to train us and, I, and the culture was great. Project types weren't really something that I was interested in. So we did some residential, um, but never made any money on those. So I think I, I still get together with those partners and I'm like, I don't think you guys ever made a single cent on anything I ever did. But they were like, yeah, you were just there to have fun, right? And keep the energy alive. So I ended up uh, then leaving there after a couple of years and I went to work for Optima, um, another kind of life-changing experience, experience, experience for me. So Optima is uh, David Hovey, who's, who's an architect originally from New Zealand who kind of made his way through Chicago architecture and became a developer. So architecture architect-led development. He's a general contractor, real estate, the whole thing. And um, I worked there in both Chicago and then moved out to Arizona to work on projects out there. So I got to work in both the design office and on the construction side of things and just absolutely loved it. It was fascinating um, because we were able to build things that would be really hard to sell or price to a general contractor. Yeah. Um, we we could kind of write make our own rules even the drawing set was really thin you know for a 50 for a 25 story building you know you got like 50 sheets because you only needed to draw what you needed to draw because you had this team of architect trained builders who were putting it together so a really really fascinating um valuable experience for me uh then as the residential market started to trail trail out um i went to get partners so I'm kind of going around the world with different firm types. So uh, Getch is a you know internationally renowned 
a mid-sized firm out of downtown Chicago um, and old school Murphy Jan lineage to Jim Getch, who does incredible buildings, international work. We were really, really busy. But it was there where I learned that much more professional, uh, sophisticated level of architectural firms that just wasn't for me. Um, I couldn't really grasp the scale of the projects. I consider myself a pretty good designer, but designing a, a lobby that has 200 foot ceilings in Abu Dhabi was like, I don't, I can't, like my brain can't visualize it. I can't sleep sleep about it at night. So I'm going through this whole thing and I'm like, what, am I just going to be, you know, leading a design, uh, some sort of a project team designing high rises? I really like houses. How do I just design houses? That's all I wanted to do, right? Since the age of fifth grade when I got my drafting board. So how do I be an architect and actually design houses and pay for my kids clothes and all that stuff? Because I didn't know too many residential architects other than very high-end work. They were actually able to do that. Most of them were kind of working out of their basement um, or, you know, really uh, trying to get very high net worth clients, which is a very hard thing to do as well. Or they were already independently wealthy. So I was none of those things. So I quit Gatch and went back to graduate school. And um, that was thanks to my wife. Um, she fully supported me because she was tired of hearing me whine about it. <laughs> and I did a one-year master's at IIT, and I was trying to figure out how architects can actually be involved in residential housing in any major impactful way. And that's why I studied for a year, and I looked towards technology to kind of solve that <clears throat> and developed a thesis on that front. And then I worked for a small developer where I met my now business partner, um, and he's a former home builder, and we teamed up and started uh, LiveCo about 10 years ago. How did you, how did you meet? So he was the director of construction and I was the director of design and we were a small team. I think it was just four of us and we were doing um, ground up single family in a Chicago suburb. And we probably butted heads a lot the first three months, or I didn't think we butted heads. He thought we butted heads because I'm like everybody, but uh, he, he, you know, he's like, the last thing we need around here is another architect. And I'm like, why I'm trying to help, you know, we have the same goal. And then we would end up kind of spending more and more time together and realize we were aligned in what we were trying to do, which is, you know, build houses efficiently, make them beautiful, have happy customers, you know, and, and make a couple of dollars doing it. We were just thinking about it in two different ways. So that's how that evolved. And then, um, yeah, we kind of had a no risk opportunity to start a company and doing foreclosure rehab, um, which is not exactly... You know, you know, architectural, but it's still a lot of problem solving. Where'd that, where'd that idea come from? That so, so at that time, I mean, there was the, the residential market was in the dumps and we knew people in finance and we knew people out in California that were buying up huge, you know, portfolios of distressed properties and needed them fixed up. We, we were more professional and shiny. Like, you know, I knew how to use a computer so I could talk to, you know, high level investment companies, the guys doing the work, you know, they, they just wanted to do the work. So we kind of orchestrated um, and built apps and things like that to be able to do remodels really quickly. And we kind of coined the phrase production rehab is what we're trying to do. So we got up to about 30 houses a month and um, we did how that for about eight, 18 how months. Did you, how did you make those initial connections where did that network of investors come from how did you how did you make those connections great question so russ my partner had a buddy who used to be i think with pulte homes or something mm -hmm. and he was doing it in california and it was kind of coming to chicago later yeah. um and so he kind of gave us a heads up on it's like these guys are coming to chicago i'll connect you so i mean just like anything else in my life i think um it comes to just talking to people about what you're doing and what you're interested in. Right. And, yep. and some, sometimes the, the dots kind of connect, you know, one out of a thousand usually is kind of all you need. So, so you're doing these production renovations for, so you're taking distressed housing, basically renovating it and flipping it or holding it and renting it. So we were solely a service provider for the big institutional guys who were doing it. So we had no no skin in the game other than like a six percent margin. Yeah, right. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> it 
but it was an instant company and we had you know we started the whole company with five grand in order to get our liability insurance yeah. and some yeah. business cards so what were they were they flipping them or were they holding them they were holding them to rent yeah so, and so they, they packaged them and tur- yeah turn them into the residential reits and yeah right. Okay. went public and all that stuff so that gives they you a foundation well. that gives you an, ex- an excuse to start a company uh doing what you want to do and a time that probably was difficult to do other things and so it gave you that that foot first step into being independent and doing doing things your way and so you and your partner started this company to do that work yeah exactly and uh yeah i mean it's somewhat organic it's or opportunist right you know instead of saying hey this is what i want to do I want to design all these incredible houses for these people and start from nothing and wait three years to have the first. We had kind of service work and we're able to learn along the way. Um, You know, you don't see any of those projects on our website, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it it was, it's a, it's an interesting way to get started. That's exactly why I like talking about those early days, right? Because architects are listening. Some of them are thinking about starting their firms. Um, And we all have, the dream, right? Of having the perfect firm, designing the perfect houses for the perfect client, making lots of money and, you know, doing it forever. Right. And, and that can happen, but it doesn't typically happen overnight. It, it's an evolution, right? There is some, some happenstance and some, some opportunities that come along, but it's about you taking those opportunities and moving to this next step and keep moving to or towards where you want to go. So how did you, how did you take that next step from doing this production work? So I don't know that I had the confidence to think that whatever I designed was people were going to love and was going to be good. And that's a little bit scary, right? Mm-hmm. Cause someone's paying you all this money and then you're designing something and we were going to build it and then we're going to build it. And like, what if it sucks? You know, <laughs> like, that's a little terrifying. You're not going to really know that for a long time. So, I mean, I had a lot of experience, but I hadn't built uh, you know, specifically stewarded start to finish a whole lot of projects. Um, I don't think I ever told anybody that at the time, but I hadn't. So, you know, I think it starts with some friends and family that kind of believe in you. Um, and then we did an addition on our house, um, to kind of test. And and, I mean, I think that's true for so many architects. They're, they're Frank Lloyd Wright did it right. I don't know if you've been to his home and studio, but it's just a laboratory. He's just testing all kinds of different things and seeing what works. Um, so our house was totally that, um, you know, I think I was, I had a lot of architect peers or, you know, good friends who are architects and I was always, you know, getting together with them, seeing what they were working on, went to, you know, the international builder show, trying to see what cool products were out there. So trying to kind of build out my, my confidence and my ability to do some cool stuff, um, and then I had the confidence that, yeah, you know what, I think I am actually good at this. Um, I always thought I was, but I didn't want to say that because what if I'm not? Um, and and then you you do that for a little while, and then you eventually learn like, wait, I think I'm good enough at this that people actually pay me more money in order to do this. Um, and that's a slow evolution. Yeah, it was yeah. way way too slow of an evolution to be honest. But um, uh, a lot of that, honestly, and Russell never listened to this anyway. But um, was <laughs> <laughs> was my my partner? I mean, he comes from a world of of production home building. I don't think that he believed because the market that they sold to didn't believe that there was um, that there was a, a mass culture of people that was going to pay for, you know, design services, regular people that weren't, you know, high net worth. So I think it was hard to really believe that and until we had proof of concept and, and then we, we eventually did, which is what we do now. But how did you get there though? Because I think I think Russ's fear is pretty common, right? Architects also feel that way, and we're all trying to figure it out, right? There are many architects, and you're talking to thousands of them who are residential architects who want want to make a living designing homes and making people happy. Um, and so, how do you get from that that lack of confidence? to the confidence, to the clients? Great question. And um, there's a lot there. Um, One reason we charge a lot more for design now is because we didn't have any choice. Because historically, because we're design build, it's easy to tell yourself, 
I don't care about making money on design because I'm going to make the money on the right. build. You'll make it up in the construction. Right. Right. I sold that to a lot of my peers. Like, I don't care. You know, as long as my kids, I can buy them a new hockey stick every couple of years, you know, on the build side, I, I don't care on giving that away. Um, you know, ego aside and all that, I've come back around on that. Uh, and in a lot of ways, but what happened is when the pandemic hit, all of our construction stopped. I had no revenue, right? I mean, we had a couple projects that we needed to finish up, but everyone else was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to, you know, break ground right now. Let's see what's right. going on. So that revenue stream stopped. So then I'm like, well, my only way to make any money and not lay everybody off because I have nothing coming in is to sell design. So it's kind of how, forced how big was your it. team at that point? Uh, I think we were ten. Okay, and so construction stops. You're like, okay, <laughs> all I have left is some sort of design service to sell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they can either pay me fifteen thousand dollars to do this piece of it, or I gotta let somebody go. Yeah, like if they paid me seven hundred and fifty dollars to do something, it didn't it didn't do me any good. Like the numbers didn't work, right? So how do so, you make that transition? How do you go? In, okay, so the mindset shift happens, right? Okay, I have to shift from construction to design because that's my only opportunity to survive here. What was the first step towards building that into a service, you know, that you can sell? Exactly. So that's the other part of it, right? Is to have a really clear, um, I mean, I'll call it a product, but you know, a lot of it, a lot of our product is our process. Mm -hmm. So we have two design steps. Um, we have a feasibility design, which we charge anywhere from 5,500 to 10,500 for that. Um, and it's a very in-depth two design cycle. We do a concept A, get feedback, do a concept B. Um, and it's all three-dimensional three modeling, um, full visualization, and we do budgeting. So it's a pretty intense kind of first, first dive into design. So we really kind of built that product out um, over the years and it got better and better and better. And the better it got, we're like, well, I think this is worth more money now. Right. So we don't just do a plan sketch, you know, for 500 bucks. People right. can do that. Right. Yeah. The low cost commitment. Um, we do, you know, you're committing to us really seeing if this project is feasible, working through the budget, working through all these aspects of it. And we package that really cleanly. And another key to that is it's very clear that we only do two concepts. We don't show multiple options because yeah. it's another place where it just, you know, spins out of control. And you said that's iterative, right? So you're presenting one design and then going back and modifying that, that one design. Exactly. Yeah. So we're getting a huge amount of feedback because we're taking it so far. So if we did three concepts, I can only take each concept a third of the way, right? Or it takes more time. So we do one kind of all in concept. And uh, I mean, here's another like great pointer that I learned from a, it was actually from a sales trainer. Um, most of the things when you present multiple concepts to people, you spend all this time drawing and figuring out how to present it. Most of the time that can just be answered by a phone call to them, right? That's to great. ask them a question yeah, like, right. how would you feel if you had to go downstairs to go do laundry? Yeah. No. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I never want to do that. And you're like, right. okay, great. Well, now I don't have to develop that entire thing. So what, what we learned is there's, there's, and I think our clients are always kind of amazed by it and how often we're actually able to, you know, nail it 90% of the way on concept A, because we're, we can just answer it with questions and then really shape this thing into something really good for them. Do you and have I, a, a pre-designed service or pre-designed phase in that, that service that you're getting a lot of that information before you even start design? In terms of, um, so we do a questionnaire. Yeah. So in our onboarding, there's a questionnaire whether or not they sign on with us or not, which gives us a little yeah. bit of feedback from them. And, and how, then deep, how deep does that go? Um, Is that just surface or are you diving into the project and answer, asking questions about the project? So it's, I, I think I'd like to redesign it because um, it's been a long time, but there's some fun things in there. Like, um, you know, what's your favorite season? So we can kind of get to know them sure, a little sure. bit. Um, and, uh, you know, how, what's your ideal number of bedrooms, right? You know, do you have kids? Do you have pets? We're trying to get to know them. And we've done enough projects where we can kind of find similarities between people. Mm -hmm. um, we don't necessarily ask about design styles. 
uh, we can usually get a sense of that pretty quickly or people are coming to us because of the particular design style. And then my sales call is a 30 minute zoom. Um, and I feel like I get to know them pretty well there. Um, and I, that's when I'll ask questions because usually you can see a real estate listing and get to know the house a little bit. And like, you know, where do you guys eat? Where do you guys eat dinner? Be honest. Weed on the couch. Just tell me you eat on the couch. Right. Then we're not going to spend all this time on this dining room space. Um, and then Sarah, our, our uh, design lead, when she does the field measure, we'll spend about 90 minutes with them as well. And every client's different. Some people will say, you know, just give us what you think, you know, and then give us feedback because instead of them answering questions, we find it extremely valuable when we present this 100% design package to get really quick feedback from them on like, oh, I hate the fact that there's going to be all these windows looking at my backyard, right? As opposed to talking about that. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses, and automates them with features like the digital bills and a receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running. And the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, a.k.a. CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. Listen and subscribe right now at rcat.com slash podcast. That's rcat.com slash podcast, A-R-C-A-T, dot com slash podcast detailed every building has a story this episode is brought to you by the entree architect community annual meeting the business conference for small firm entrepreneur architects learn more at smallfirmconference.com if you could build a business conference for small firm entrepreneur architects what would it be Since I launched Entree Architect back in 2012, I've been listening. I've been watching what members want and learning what we need. And in November, we will gather in Austin, Texas to connect, to celebrate, to honor, and to learn. The Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting was inspired, designed, and launched for you. We invited top speakers to share fast-paced, get-to-the-point, TED Talk-like presentations that will provide you with the information that you need so that you can build the firm that you want. On day one of the conference, following a lineup of fantastic speakers, we'll discover the connection between mental health and our financial wealth with licensed clinical professional counselor, Joyce Martyr. And then we'll be honoring three architect members of the community at the inaugural Entree Architect Honor Awards. 
On day two, we'll hear from more great speakers, then dive deep into the successful future of our firms with Brian McCartney of ArcMark at a 90-minute strategic planning program. We'll have some fun building models with Kenya and Matt Forget of Sticks and Bricks, and we'll learn from an icon, Gene Cohn, founder of KPF, at the day two keynote. We plan this event to start with an evening reception on Tuesday, November 1st, and end on Thursday afternoon on November 3rd so that you'll have time to connect with friends post-event to discover the city of Austin and its amazing architectural sites on Friday and into the weekend. We've been approved by the AIA for 12.75 CEUs, and everyone will leave with a cool bag of swag. Whether you're a member of the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, a member of the Entree Architect Academy membership, or a small firm architect practicing anywhere in the world who wants and needs the support and connection of like-minded architects, the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting Small Firm Business Conference is for you. With generous support from our friends at Monograph, visit smallfirmconference.com now for tickets, and we will see you in Austin this November. That's smallfirmconference.com. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So with that package, how far and how deep do you go into the design? When a client receives the result of that package, um, are they immersed in that space and understand what it's going to look like? And you said it was 3D and how far do you go with that? Is that fully rendered so they can really experience what that space may, may feel like? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, we're using SketchUp and the Enscape plugin and you can go really far with that. Yeah. And yeah, we're putting people in it for scale and to show energy. We're just like any other architect. We're trying to leverage whatever tools we can to help communicate how we're thinking about how the space feels. Um, so we'll do the walkthrough cause they'll come into the office and we'll put it on the big screen and we'll navigate through it. We do printouts, we do QR codes so they can do VR in the space. Um, just whatever we can do to, to help them understand because we're pretty excited about what we're presenting to them and we want them to kind of get it. Yeah. Um, and a floor plan, and I always talk about the floor plan too. Like if you're going to buy a house, you know, you wouldn't buy it from a floor plan. You know, you'd want to go see it. So we're right. trying to do whatever we can to help them kind of feel that. Yeah. And you, and you get to yes quicker, right? If they, Absolutely. The faster they understand the space and say yes or no, the faster you can be finished with the project and the faster you finish the project, the more profit you make. Absolutely. And more than me having to explain why I'm putting this door here or doing that. Yeah. They're like, that's it. I want that. Give me that. How do I get that? What's the next step? Right. You know, right. It's not always that clean, but yeah. yeah, I mean, we're, we're really good at what we do and we get there very quickly. So when they sign on, you know, a month after field measure, they see the, their, their future life. And then they have a sense of how much it's going to cost too. Cause that's also part of the huge part of the program that helps give feedback. Right. Right. So that's a great package. So they have a full design, totally understand exactly what they're, what they're going to get. They have a budget that's tied to that. Um, how committed is that budget? Is that, is that a budget sort of a ballpark of this is approximately how much it's going to cost? Or is that sort of a pre-bid for the construction side? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would consider it a pre-bid because it is detailed and we do it, we call it a budget detail. We so started doing it. Well, the last couple of years, it's been really, really hard. So <laughs> yeah, right, I'm um, sure. Yeah. You know, we're using historic unit costs. We're not bidding anything out, but we're trying to use you know, yeah. previous project experience um, and trying, you know, what, what, cause it's a big question from them always like, you know, how accurate is this? I'm like, this is as, as accurate as, as it is today, right? Exactly. Based on what yeah. we know and the assumptions that we've made, but it doesn't help me if the if we go through all the detailed design and you pay us even more money and then it costs more. Yeah, like yeah. that is yeah. not fun. happy. You don't get yeah. the project; they're unhappy. Not good. And we work really hard to try and update budgets throughout the project. And right now, I mean, that's like one of the, one of the hardest things that, that we deal with and people pay us so that we can help guide them and because yeah. they want to build the project. 
Yeah, it, and it sounds like it's such a great idea to sort of put together a package like that, right? So the package is really clear. This is what you're going to get. This is the scope of the work. This is the result of what you're going to get at the end. This is, this. you're gonna get a budget. You're going to be able to make a specific decision on whether this is a go or no-go project. And you're gonna pay for it, right? This is a service that's valuable, right? You're going to get all of this information. Um, and so you're going to pay for it. And you're yep. gonna pay a lot for it, um, you know, relative to what they potentially could get from another architect that might do a sketch for $500 and call it a, a feasibility study. Um, yep. And so comparing those two, right? That's because that's what they do, right? They're, they're coming to you, they're looking at what you're offering and they're gonna go compare it to, to others if they can find something similar. And they're going to see, well, this is $10,000 and this is, you know, $1,000. Yeah, so, I mean, some of our competition does that first step for free because it's a loss yeah. leader construction. Yeah. I'm like, call them, have them do it for free. Exactly. Why not, right? Right, <laughs> right exactly, that's the answer, right? Right. Right. Do it. <laughs> right, if that's what you're looking for, we don't do that. Yeah, and you can still call me afterwards. Why? Like yeah. we used to sell the things for seven hundred and fifty dollars, and we're so excited when someone signed on for seven hundred and fifty dollars. And basically, they're like, "Yeah, you're going to do all this for seven hundred and fifty dollars? Yeah, I'll yeah. give you seven hundred and fifty dollars." Right. And we didn't. We didn't make any money on it. Um, when you when you started charging more for it, was it a realization that they would pay for it, or was it sort of? Let's throw a big number at this and see if somebody would pay for it. How did you get to that higher number? How did you get the confidence to say, yeah, this is a $10,000 service? Um, well, I mean, the, the easiest way to do it is because, I mean, we do T-sheets, so I have everyone's timesheet, so I know how much it costs us to do it. So it's a calculation. Yeah. And then, you know, well, ho holy crap, this costs us, you know, $4,000 to do it. I'm charging $750. W what what do I need to charge to, you know, actually hit the gross profit that we need that we do on construction to make this, you know, basically our design team was, I mean, they were in overhead and our overhead was in over the top. It was crazy. Right. So every time I wanted to hire another architect, it's like, well, we can't, you know, so you end up having to do too much work with too few people because you're, it's not profitable. And then as you actually, you know, run the math and say, this is legitimately how long it takes to do this. And this is how much money we need to make. Then you just say, well, this is then what we need to charge. Yeah. And everyone freaked out at my, at my office. They're like, Oh my God, we're going to go out of business. Nobody's ever going to pay this. <laughs> and so we put it out there and people paid it. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, there's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable. or I'm going to go out, go out of business or you have so much work and you have backlog. And you don't need any more work, so you charge way more, right? Yeah. So there's there's two relatively risk-free mechanisms in there. I think our first, our earlier increases were were based on backlog, like lots of people were signing up. And so we're like, well, might as well charge a little bit more, more money for it. And then we did. We tested the market and how far they would go. Um, you know, I think I, I've found 6,500 is a pretty comfortable number uh, for people. When we get to 8,500, that feels more like 10 grand to them. Yeah, um, yeah, but there's certain projects I just can't do for 6,500. Like I'll lose money. So, right. um, so that's interesting. That that part of that decision process is knowing your numbers, right? That's understanding your business, understanding what the profit margin is, what your cash flow is, all of those things that we talk about here on the podcast. That's why you do it, right? So you can have that confidence and say, yes, this is what my service is worth. And so, absolutely. And there are clients out there that will be happily pay you for it, especially if you're providing exactly what they want, right? When they think about what they want and that package is presented to them, they're like, yes, that's what I want. Right. And yeah, it's, 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 it's problem solving. And so many people come to us with the chicken and egg scenario where they're like, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how much it's going to cost to improve my house. How much is it going to cost? I'm like, I have no idea how much it's going to cost to improve <laughs> right. your house, right? Yes. right. <laughs> you know, you need to, if you're bringing in a general contractor to just tell you how much it's going to cost, they're making a number up, right? right? So, you know, you can figure out how much you want to spend and be comfortable with, and then we can create a scenario to see how far you can go with that, or we can help, help you guys figure out, um, you know, what your end game is um on this house if you're going to be here for forever and kind of look at the max potential of it and then we can budget that and you guys can use that information to do what you need to i mean in my first job we would do um feasibility studies for large retail developers right 
they're doing their due diligence on buying yep. a piece of land and they have to pay an architect to really figure out how many parking spots they can get, how much square footage, like it's, it's in the nature of the industry to have to spend money on the due diligence to figure out what your potential is. And, and that's what we do. Um, and one of those other questions on the questionnaire that's really important, is, especially in Chicagoland is how long do you plan to live in your home? Yeah. Cause yeah. if they say, if they write one to two years, I was like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Right. Just sell your house now. Um, and I had a call with a, with a couple yesterday and we kind of had that conversation where, you know, I can do the feasibility study for an addition and a whole house remodel. And based on the scale of it, it'd be $6,500. Um, but you guys, everything you're telling me right now is like, you don't necessarily like, like the block you're on. Cause there's a lot of traffic, you know, and you don't want to live there for forever or even necessarily for 10 years. So why don't you guys, take a pause, call me when you're sure you want to stay here and go through the pain and expense of remodeling your house. Yeah. And then we can work on it. And I think they appreciate that because we're trying to help them solve their They'll problems. Come back and they'll refer you to others because you help them with that, that decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. So you said earlier that, that there's two primary products that LiveCo offers. So we just talked about one. What's this other service, this other product that you, that you offer? So the, our second design step, so they can end at feasibility, you know, they can put it on the shelf. I mean, yeah. if they really want to, they can take it to somebody else. Um, they can do whatever they want with it. That's the end of, of our, our first step commitment. Then we have detailed design and detailed design is when we do all the architectural documentation. Um, and that's for the purposes of trade walkthroughs, permitting, uh, you know, more formal floor plans and scopes for them to approve. And then our interior design team gets involved and that as well and guides them through all the selections pieces um and all that part of, all part of that service right there's no optional piece in there it's all all part of it yeah absolutely and yeah. that's a great question because someone asked me yesterday they're like well we have a friend who's an interior designer right. can we use that? i'm like ask. yeah i think you can but you still have to pay us to do it because we're managing it because we're our process is 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 getting everything to the build team so that we can build it efficiently so that yeah. we you know, can procure materials, know how it's going to go together, um, you know, be able to plan accordingly and and not slow down the schedule and make sure we know what it's going to cost. When you when they sign on to that second step, are they signing on to construction as well? Are they committing to you as a, con, a builder? No, no, we don't do that until the end. Okay, uh, so so you're doing a design initial design package, then you're doing detailed design. They have a biddable set buildable set at the end of that step kind of because it's it's our set yeah. so our drawing set is designed in the way that we build okay so it's less so not um, necessarily biddable to other contractors it's just a, a set of drawings that are ready for you to build it right yeah it's in and for permitting so you know you're not going to see as much you know pardon my french but cover your ass notes right yeah, uh, I just I just did a drawing review and I'm like this this is just making our our subs make things more expensive, you know. There's too much too many words to read, right? You know, because <laughs> um, so it's a very simple drawing set, and then we have separate detail sheets that are needed, and then we have a separate selections package, and then that goes into a binder that gets handed off to construction. So if if you were to send it out to bid there might be certain aspects of it that someone could bid as a general, but it, it wouldn't be necessarily right, right. what you would normally see from a, so from a regular architect. So typically when a, when a customer comes to you, um, they're going through this, this feasibility study, then they're doing a fully designed design set. And, and, and then what happens at the end of that design set? Are you getting so, paid for that package? Is that yes. Yeah. So detailed design has a separate fee. That's 8% of the budget that comes out of feasibility. Okay. So, so our, they've our, agreed, this is what it's going to cost. It's a, you know, half a million dollar project. And then the next phase is based on the percentage of what they agreed that project may cost. Exactly. Got it. Yep. So it's so essentially our, a flat fee based on the estimated cost of the, the correct space. Got it. Uh, and I've talked about this to a lot of different people and they're like, well, why did you do that? And I'm like, I'm lazy. You know, I'm, I'm like, I don't know. I don't like writing proposals. I don't know exactly how long it's going to take. I, I don't want to do a retainer and, you know, build them weekly. It's like if based on my, my payroll and the volume of work that we have to do, 
you know, my 8% plus the feasibility fee covers it and is profitable or should be. So yeah, yeah. that's something that can continually be refined. Sure, but sure, that's yeah. how we're we're kind of set up right now. And and again, you're giving the client what they want. The client wants a, a hard number, right? They want okay. What does this phase cost? Uh, right. If it's eight percent of some future number, they're like, oh, that doesn't mean anything to me. But it's eight percent of the the number that you just agreed that that's the project you want to build. Then they're like, yeah, got it. Okay, eight percent of a hundred thousand dollars is you know eight thousand dollars. So it, exactly. They're good to go. Yeah, it's not based on what their budget is because then they're going to say, well, my budget's $50,000, right, exactly. so I pay a percentage yeah. of that. That doesn't do you any good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, usually they'll end up spending more during detailed design, you know, design change orders or whatever. The scope will get bigger, you know, um, so their percentage ends up like a little bit less. You know, I think it averages out probably like 6% yeah. Um, yeah. at the end of the day, but it 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 works for now. So at the end of that design phase, then they commit to construction with you? Yep. So then we have the full construction package or construction contract package. So that's, so that's our third step. Yep. Yep. So they they sign on to that. And then, you know, we have a regular payment structure and then we start building it. There's not a whole lot to say about that phase. That's the easy part, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, so, so they go through the feasibility, they go through full design, then they commit to construction and you start construction. Um, you know, obviously all the other things, approvals, all of that is included in, in one of these phases, right? So how does, where, where do the approvals fit? In the construction or the design? So the approvals are in design. Okay. So when we go to contract, that contract package is about 60 pages. It's about eight pages of actual legal stuff and the rest is everything that we're putting into this house. So we, we need to be very, very specific about it. Um, and the, the pandemic helped with that too, because we, we have to order cabinets two months before we start construction Right before we would and windows. I mean, we used to be able to do demo and then order cabinets and windows. So everything really has to be um, hashed out and figured out and all the approvals happen um, on the design side. And then it, even in our handoff, we'll go through, are there any open approvals? And then we target when those need to be approved. How involved is the design team during construction? Too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, we do remodels in old Chicago suburbs. So there's a lot of wild card conditions. Yeah. So what we try and do is identify places where there might be an opportunity to make a design change ahead of time so that we can try and schedule that. Um, because that's one of the hard parts for our, our interior design team is they get continually sucked into construction and then they can't focus on the projects that are in detailed design. Right. So, we, so we have another architect that we actually um, hired about a year ago and he is actually on the construction side as project developer. And that's kind of how his role is shaping up is to to be that liaison from design and construction and, yeah. and help help connect the dots on that so to everyone make that process very efficient somebody's dedicated to design changes during construction um and, exactly. and the design changes are they typically because they're existing homes uh just design opportunities that sort of pop up during construction that you you're taking advantage of or are they changes of mind from a client saying Oh, that's not what I wanted. I want this instead. It's all of the above. Um, so sometimes we'll have something where, I mean, it's usually my fault, um, where I walk in and I'm like, Ooh, you know, it'd be really <laughs> cool here. Yeah. Um, and clients like that. I mean, that's another reason they hire us. If we see something that could be better, um, you know, at least propose it, you know, they know it's going to cost more. It's going right. to take longer. And we'll say, you know, this might cost more or take longer, but you want to hear it. And they're like, yeah, we want to hear it. Um, so, and those are probably few and far between uh, because we do try and spend a lot of time in the design phase and solving those things, but you know, it's, you never know. Um, and then, yes, you'll definitely have, have clients who um, will see something and say, you know, what if we move this wall over here and, or do something like that? Th those, but those really don't happen too often either, just because we have spent so much time right um up front and then the third part yeah unforeseen conditions where we're opening up a ceiling on a 120 year old house and it's built in the weirdest way that yeah. we could ever imagine 
Right. And never ever could have anticipated, and we have to solve that. Yeah, I've been, I've, I've, for twenty years, I worked in Westchester County, just north of New York City. Very similar housing there, and we've opened up ceilings where you expect to see a beam, and there's no beam, and you're wondering, <laughs> how, is how is this house up? standing up? I don't. It's okay. I know we always we always <laughs> say they don't build them like they used to for yeah. good reason. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting what you find in old houses. Um, yeah, super interesting. Um, before I get to the final question, I have one more question because you've done a good job on your brand, Livco, and, and the way it looks, the way it sounds. When you go to the website, it's very clear. How important is your brand to your success? Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah, our brand is is very very specific i think even the colors you kind of see you know our photographer um the way he kind of does the graininess and i don't even know what he does um to make it kind of have that you know leathery vibe you know that black and leather or whatever um so yeah i think it's it's always been important and the way we did it is um i think i'm pretty good at designing houses but i and i think i'm good at graphic design and branding i'm not not compared to people. It's, Listen it's up, so, architects, because we're all in the same boat. We all think we can design our own logos. No, and it's like if you meet a graphic designer who thinks he's really good at designing a house. Right. Yep. You know, it's like no, it's two very two different worlds, and they're just exposed to way more that we haven't even thought about yet. Right. So um, we commissioned a uh, pretty daggone high end Chicago marketing company to develop, this is our new one, but I had them develop just, we call it our guidebook, yeah. just a marketing piece. That's it, it. Explain what you're holding. So, so listeners can understand what that is. Oh, so, um, it, it's essentially, you know, a little magazine, basically it walks through our process, has our portfolio. We call it a guidebook. Um, it, you know, I think it, it lends a professional, um, angle to what we do it's yeah. not inexpensive to make uh it emits what we're trying to uh bring to the world you know inspired design it's something that you want to look through it's kind of cool it has fun stuff in it. it has like a connect the before and afters so we had uh we had a high-end chicago firm develop just that because we went to them and we're like we we would we need some help kind of branding and doing all that stuff. And they're like, all right, where do you want to start? Cause it's going to be like half a million dollars. And we're like, we have 10. <laughs> so they're like, well, what if we just focus on one piece? Yeah. And it was invaluable because they developed LiveCo. They figured out what font we needed to use. They wrote really, really good copy. We were then able to take that, apply it to our website, um, continue to use it in all of our pieces. So um, that's how we got started kind of on a budget is, is hiring that group to do it. And then and they, you know, they helped you name the company as well. Live companies was part of that. No live companies was my name. Okay. And they, they shortened it to live. Livco. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Where did the name live companies come from? We're going to have to have a whole nother episode, Mark. Um, <laughs> we could do that. Do the short version. Now and we'll come back and talk about branding another day. So when I, yeah, when I first uh, started, uh, working as an architect, I had a little side LLC and I called it live funner F U N N E R because I was working in Chicago architecture and it just wasn't very fun. So I, was, I appreciated that. like the, the whole idea of like the, the prickly mountain design build guys where like we have a 10 foot sheet of plywood and we don't have a saw. So we're just going to let it hang two feet over the edge. You know, I, there was something that I thought was could be like fun about architecture where it didn't have to be so Miesian and so perfect. Yeah. Um, so that's how I created Live Funner. And then when we started LiveCo, um, we just got rid of the funner, but still want to be focused on living. And Live LiveCo can do branch out to all kinds of different yeah. avenues yeah. associated with living. It doesn't just have to be architecture or construction. Yeah, I love it. Kind of the love idea. It. And if anybody's looking for the website, it's livecompanies.com, spelled out L-I-V, no E on live, L-I-V-E companies, spelled out, dot com. Um, you can go check it out, livecompanies.com. Um, Dave, before we wrap up, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? What's the one thing? Um, I'm going to talk very business because we talked about numbers a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know how many firms out there as an owner have yourself an overhead. So if you run your business model and as a owner's salary, you are an overhead and everybody else is billable hours, it will change your life. Because I think too often you count yourself as billable hours and um, you're basically just making a job for yourself. And it's going to be very, very difficult to grow. So I don't know if you agree with that, Mark, but run that Excel spreadsheet model, put owner salary, whatever you need to make to be happy in overhead, and then figure out what you need to charge. Yeah, I love that. Very interesting. His name is Dave Pollard. The company, again, is Live Companies. The website is livecompanies.com. Dave, thanks for coming by here and sharing your story, sharing some inspiration about how you built Live Companies. Um, it is a model that so many architects are looking for. They want to do what you've done. We've also learned how hard it has been to get to where you are. And so I appreciate you for sharing that story and for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, Please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. Share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And visit smallfirmconference.com for more information about our lineup of speakers, check out the agenda, and purchase your tickets for the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, the business conference for small firm entrepreneur architects. We do have a few tickets still available, but we're almost sold out. So visit smallfirmconference.com and register today. And before we wrap up, a special thank you to our partners at Graphisoft for helping our community of architects make the transition to BIM with ARCHICAD software. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. Visit graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect to learn more. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Entree Architect podcast. My name is Mark Arla Page. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? 
Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.